if you have spent any time here uh, at uh, the church or at our house, you probably already knew this, but I got issues. And of the countless number of things that I struggle with, one of them is how I handle things that are done uh, partially or half done. For example, when the gas tank gets below a half a tank or at a half a tank, I feel like I need to fill that thing up or we're going to have problems. I would rather finish a task completely or not do it at all than to have it only be half done. I tried painting a ceiling last night. It's only half done right now, and it is eating me alive right now. If you came in here and spent the day in the office, you'd, you'd find that I rarely take breaks. Of course, my breaks are probably joking around with Dave, but uh, I don't like taking breaks. I would rather make sure that I get everything on my to-do list checked off for the day. When I was a kid, I always belonged to the Clean Plate Club because I couldn't stand to see food left over on my plate. And it, even if it stuffed me so much that I wouldn't feel good for the rest of the night, that plate was going to be 100% cleaned up. My phone used to have uh, not only the battery indicator on it, but I also had the percentage indicator on it too, so I could see exactly what percentage my phone was at. And if it was at 50%, I felt like I had to find a charger as soon as I could because it seems like phones go, their charge loses so much quicker after 50%. But maybe that's, just, uh, maybe that's just my perception, so I had to take off uh, that, uh, that percentage indicator. I find it interesting, however, that while I'm vigilant about a lot of these areas uh, in my life that are only partially full, uh, I find one area in my life that is the hardest to sustain at 100%, and that is, that is my faith. It's my, it's, my, it's my faith in Christ. Life gets busy, I get distracted or I get prideful and I think, hey, I got all this together. But when it comes down to it, what it is is that I often lack the, the, the self-discipline and the self-control to have my life be devoted 100% to my Lord and Savior, Jesus. And perhaps you're like that too. Maybe you're, you're not as, uh, as quick to go and, and fill up the tank when it's just at 50% as I am, or maybe you're one of those weird people that likes to see your battery turn red before you need to plug it into your phone. But uh, my guess is that you aren't as concerned about the charge level in your spiritual life as you are about your phone. Jesus was quite serious when he said, pick up your cross and follow me. But many of us, we hear his call, and we figure that we'll just get to it uh, maybe with, with, with half excitement, and we tell Jesus, hey, you know what, Jesus, uh, hang on, Jesus, I'll, I'll give you a little bit today, uh, but uh, I, I got to do this first. I'll have more time when I retire. I'll have more time after the kids go to bed. I'll have more time in the, in, in the morning. You see, the thing is, is that you and I, we are living on half-charged faith. 
And I fear that as this pandemic continues rolling further and further on uh, through the calendar year, our battery charge keeps going down, down, and down, and down. And it goes from 50% to 25 to 20 to 15 to 10. It, it turns red. And because of life the way it is right now, we just stop caring. And we've been looking at the life of Jacob for the past number of weeks now, and what we've seen is a man who, like us, goes about his days with a half-charged faith. In the previous chapter, uh, Jacob's uh, his life had taken a dramatic turn for the better when he spent the entire night wrestling with a pre-incarnate uh, manifestation of God. And though the wrestling match had left him physically crippled for the rest of his life, he would leave stronger and healthier than he had ever been before. He, and he, uh, his life was changed because he truly met the living God. But the interesting thing about Jacob's life from here on out is that he experiences life just as those of us who have also met the living God and that is that we are changed. We're no longer the person that we used to be. Uh, however, there are parts of our past that, that tend to linger, tend to hold on. Our old habits, they die hard. And when we've gone from a life that is all about me, 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 to a life that is all about Jesus, there's going to be some transitional difficulties that come along with that. Until we are in glory... And one of those is a faith that is half-charged. And so today we're going to look at Genesis 33, and we're going to look at three ways in which we can plug into Jesus and get powered up. And the first thing that we need to look at today is that we need to strive for complete trust in Jesus Christ. We need to strive for 100% faith. We need to strive for an all-in faith. So unless you have genuinely feared for your life at one point or another. It's hard to really get at the despair that Jacob has, is, is feeling at this point. He, has, he hasn't seen his brother Esau. Weird. He hasn't seen his brother Esau for 20 years. I mean, I've been dealing with mice and bats all this fall, so when I hear stuff like this, kind of puts me on, on edge a little bit. Um, he hasn't seen his brother Esau in over 20 years. And the last time that he did see, see him, he ran away because Esau had threatened his life. And at the beginning of chapter 32, Jacob even sends gifts in order to bribe him and manipulate Esau into standing down. But when his messengers returned, not only did Esau reject the gifts, but they said, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And so, as far as Jacob knows, this is it. His life of being a brat a cheat and a liar and a manipulator. It's finally coming back to haunt him. And in his panic, he separates his family out 
into two, hoping that at least one of them will survive. And finally, in desperation, we, we saw last week that he prays. And in verses uh, 9 through 12 of 32, Jacob utters the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. It's a prayer of deliverance. And in the middle of the night, the Lord answers this prayer. But not in the way that Jacob expects. Instead of taking him uh, away from his fear of what's going to happen the next day, he reroutes Jacob's fear to its proper place in the fear of the Lord. In verses 22 through 31, God shows up again and wrestles with Jacob all night. And last week we saw that throughout that whole wrestling match that Jacob would not let go. He was going to hold on to him in all of his distress and all of his troubles. He was truly wrestling with the one whom he has been wrestling with his whole life. And that is God himself. And God proved his authority over Jacob by giving him a new name, Israel. He proved his power over him by touching his hip socket and popping it out of joint. And Jacob would live the rest of his life with this limp, but it was okay because he was walking with God. And so now when we come to chapter 32, there's this picturesque feeling that Jacob is finally whole. He's limping, but he's healed. And however, uh, when we open up chapter 33, which seemingly happens that morning as the sun rises, we see a man who only has partial faith. Let's look in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So let's be absolutely clear here. Jacob had a physical fight with God all night long. And God had sustained him through that fight, and now his brother is coming at him with 400 men, and Jacob is way more terrified at this band of an army that's coming at him than he was when he was wrestling with God. Please excuse this interruption. Emmanuel had a technical issue that cut the live feed for a moment. We now return to the sermon of the judgment of God than we ought to be if 400 men with weapons were charging at us. And in his fear, in the second half of verse 1, begins to tell us what he did. Look with me in, in verse 1 again. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Now, I said this last week, but fear will often lead us to do completely irrational things. Things that we never imagined that we would do. And here is a prime example. Or we are just seeing the depravity of Jacob's heart here. He separates his family in the order that he prefers them. He put Zilpah and the children that she bore to him in the front lines. Bilhah he put second with the children she bore him next. 
then Leah and her children, and in the back, he puts Rachel and Joseph. Now, I don't know if you remember much from uh, your uh, elementary school days when you took Minnesota history, but Minnesota played a very critical role in the Civil War. Minnesota became a state in 1858. Can anybody tell me what day Minnesota became a state? Anybody? May 11th. Did anybody get that? May 11th, 1858. And by 1861, just three years later, the 1st Minnesota Infantry uh, Regiment was sent out east to the Civil War. And after fighting at the first Battle of Bull Run and the Battle of Sharpsburg, they were sent out to Gettysburg. And the Confederates were going to take Cemetery Ridge. And the only way to stop them before more Union troops were to arrive was to send in the 1st Minnesota Infantry uh, Regiment. The 1st Minnesota met two Southern divisions, totaling 1,600 soldiers. The 1st Minnesota had only 250 only 47 of them survived. It's an 82% casualty rate, and it stands as the largest loss by any surviving U.S. military unit in a single day's engagement ever in the history of the United States. But because they were put in the front lines with such little to offer but their bodies... They changed the course of the entire Battle of Gettysburg. And because of that, very likely we could say that the first Minnesota changed the course of the entire Civil War. That's heroic. That's sacrificial. That is honorable. When Jacob broke up his family into units and put them in harm's way according to his preferred order... It's despicable. It's condemnable. It's dishonorable. And yes, verse 3 says that he, uh, he himself then went on before them, so at least he put himself in front of every, everyone else. But here's a man who prayed a great prayer, who wrestled with God all night, drew an enormous amount of confidence on his position, this new position with God. And yet here he is, a coward who prioritizes his favorites in his family. And it's all because he is half-trusting God, living with partial faith. And sure, he wants to trust God, But apparently, God needs Jacob's hideous plan. What about you? Are you partially trusting God today? Are you known to have a vibrant relationship with, with the Lord? But when stress comes into your life... You tend to act as if your knowledge is better than the Lord's? Are you living with a half faith by which you are willing to throw 
friends and family under the bus to get what you want? As much as we hate to admit it, we are just like Jacob. Reusing the benefits of trusting God when life is good and when it gets dangerous or confusing or unclear, well, we're on our own. So we need to stop the charade and strive to trust Jesus with everything that we have. And second, we need to work towards reconciliation. Work towards reconciliation. One of the most overlooked hurdles of having a vibrant relationship with God is the amount of brokenness that is in our horizontal relationships with others. God deeply cares about our relationship with other people. This is why we took so long going through the prodigal son parable. And this is why we, we spent so much time in the letter of Paul to Philemon. Relationships matter, and if we are not right with others, it affects our relationship with God. If you're experiencing a dry spot in your, in your walk with God, if you're feeling like your prayers aren't being answered, is it possible that you have a relationship somewhere in your life that is strained and struggling? Obviously, Jacob and Esau had their issues. Jacob had horribly, horribly violated Esau's trust. Time and time again, Jacob showed himself to be a brother who cared absolutely nothing for anybody else other than himself. And when Jacob tricked their father Isaac into giving him the blessing and the inheritance, Jacob stole everything of Esau, his past, his present, his future. Esau had a very good case against Jacob. But time has a way of hardening or softening hearts. There are people that I have known that were wronged decades ago. And they are still bitter about it today. In fact, they may be more bitter about it today because as the decades have gone on, that has festered in their hearts and it has become worse and worse. On the other hand, there are people that I've met that have, have had years of conflict with someone and they just sit back and reflect and they're ready to make it right. Verses 4 through 14, Esau surprisingly shows that his demeanor has changed. Look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him. Now imagine, 400 people are running towards Jacob. And he ran to meet him. And what does he do? Just like the prodigal son's father, he embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they, plural, Jacob, Esau, wept. So what's changed in Esau? He has come to realize that relationships are more important than being right. 
it is more important to be restorative than to seek revenge. And it's telling here that Esau doesn't even bring up the past. It's not saying that we don't need to bring it up in our conflicts in order to work them through, but it's proof here that Esau has put it past him, put it behind him. And it seems as if Esau is more concerned with meeting Jacob's family. Look at verse 5. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And it's here that we learn that not only has Esau changed, but so has Jacob. Verse 5, Jacob said, these are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Why is that a significant statement? It's because for the first time, Jacob is acknowledging that everything that he has has not come from his manipulative hands, but it's come from the gracious, merciful, kind hands of God. One of the true signs of true repentance and faith is a heartfelt recognition of the source of everything in our life. If Jesus is the center of your life, then everything that you have is merely a means for serving him or for showing others his glory. And further, Jacob's repentance is not only to God, uh, but also in regards to Esau. And it's shown how everyone greets Esau. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Anytime you're reading an Old Testament narrative, especially when you see repeated something happening, that's significant. That's the author trying to tell us something. And the repeated actions are that they bowed down. In verse 3, Jacob bowed down himself seven times before Esau. Why? Because Jacob is finally placing himself in his proper position as the younger brother. He is recognizing the part that he has played in this entire mess. If you want to have relationships restored, we must take responsibility for our actions and our words that contributed to the rift that exists. And be ready to potentially pay restitution. Which Jacob tries to do in verses 8 through 11. Look with me there. But Esau said, Why, uh, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, Well, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, which he did just see the face of God that night in, in a wrestling match. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and so he took it. So what's happening here is that Jacob is, is recognizing that he stole Esau's blessing. 
And in many ways, Esau should have been the one with the wealth. Esau should have been the one with the blessings. He's the one that should have had the inheritance. So Jacob wants these material blessings that God had given him to go to Esau as a means of restitution. So with all of this, we learn a a few biblical principles when it comes to reconciliation. These are just a few. First is that an unreconciled relationship hinders our walk with God. It hinders our walk with God. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, Jesus said, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and essentially he's talking about worship here. If you're worshiping, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave it there uh, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And second... Reconciliation requires you to own up to your contributions in the conflict. Third, reconciliation may mean, though not always, that restitution is involved. If you remember when the prodigal son uh, ran home to, uh, to his, well, came home to his father and his father ran to him, the speech that he had planned in Luke chapter uh, 15 was this, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So how is he going to make up for everything that he's done? He's going to enslave himself to his father. And fourth and finally, reconciliation doesn't mean that you have to be best friends. It just means that you are at peace with each other. Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. And we see this sort of in a strange way in in verses uh, 12 through 17. Esau, Esau asks Jacob to go to Seir with him. And Jacob obviously can't do that. He's had this mandate from God to go from Laban back into Canaan, specifically to the land of Bethel. And instead of having really healthy boundaries and saying, oh man, brother, that would be so fun to go back with you to see here, but you know what? God gave me a mission and I got to go back to Bethel. So I, I love you, brother, but I, I got to do this. Instead of doing that, He lies. And he says, Esau, why don't you go on ahead and and we'll we'll just catch up later. Is it a lie? Yes. It's classic Jacob. But Esau doesn't seem to care. They might not be buddy-buddy anymore, but they can live peacefully together without hiding or wanting to kill each other. So I'm willing to bet that there are more than a few of you here that have some relationships that aren't the healthiest. How is that impacting your walk with God? Have you done something to someone and pride is keeping you from going to them and saying, you know what, Man, that, was, that was really insensitive of me or that was really hurtful of me to do that and I'm really sorry and I want to ask for your forgiveness. Are you living with a half-charged faith? 
Could it be because there is a conversation in your life that needs to happen that you've been putting off? Again, Romans 12, verse 18, as far as it is among, as far as it uh, is to you, live peacefully among all. So thirdly, we need to aim for 100% obedience. Aim for 100% obedience. The end of this chapter is really quite perplexing. Uh, because we've seen the transformation of Jacob. He has wrestled with God. He's ended up crippled. He is now strong in faith. His worst fear has been abated. All is well with him and his brother. And we, are, are, we, we're, we have the picture here that all is well. It is smooth sailing. It is totally clear right now for Jacob in order to go back home, especially to, to Bethel. God had clearly uh, directed him to do so back in chapter 31. He said, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go from this land, which was where Laban was, and return to the land of your kindred. But even after the coast is completely clear for him, verse 17 shows us that he doesn't seem too interested in going home. It says, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock and therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. So here he stops and he builds a house for himself. And it's ironic because he is supposed to be at Bethel, which literally means house of God. Who knows how long he lasts, but in verses 18 through 19, he moves again. It says, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. So it is clear that he made it to Canaan. But in what in the world is he doing settling down in Shechem? Bethel is only 20 miles away. It's nothing. We ought not to give these verses a casual glance, which we often do when we have reading plan, because what we're seeing here is nothing less than the partial obedience of Jacob to God. He vowed to go back to Bethel. He stayed in Shechem. Jacob's willing disobedience will have tragic effects on his family. We're going to see this next week when we're going to see that, that his, his only recorded daughter is raped and his family is going to become a little undone because of it. But here's the point. God demands total obedience. Half-hearted, partial obedience is never enough. Ian Dugweed, in his commentary, writes this. Being in the ballpark may be sufficient when watching a baseball game, but it's not nearly enough when it comes to obeying God. 
Nothing short of full obedience is required. We all know that intellectually. So why is it then that we are so like Jacob, inclined to settle for a halfway house instead of going all the way home to God? Why is it that so often we need a crisis in our lives to move us that short step from almost obedience to full unreserved obedience? Now I can hear the, the questions. How in the world am I supposed to do that? 100% obedience? It's impossible. I can't do that. And I would say to you, that is the point. That you can't do it. You can't be right with God based on your obedience. You need the obedience of someone else attributed to you. That is why God the Father sent Christ Jesus. He was absolutely perfect in his active and his passive obedience to God. His perfect obedience was shown uh, not to give us an example to attain, but as a substitute for us. When we trust in Christ, his perfect obedience is transferred to us. Our sins of disobedience were given to him, and he swallowed up God's wrath on the cross for us. So if Christ was perfectly obedient on our behalf, why then aim to perfectly obey knowing that we'll never be able to. We aim to obey God 100%, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. Not in the hopes that our goodness or our obedience will catch his eye, but because we love him for living and dying for us. You see, God didn't choose Jacob because of his wit or his abilities. He chose Jacob and he passed over Esau purely from his sovereign grace. He chose to reveal himself to Jacob. And in that same way, he has revealed himself to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we gratefully, joyfully, willingly submit to and obey our Lord and Savior. Don't settle for partial obedience. Aim for 100% obedience. You know, I've heard it said, I, I, I have a hard time being settled with a half-charged cell phone. I went to Quick Trip on Friday because my gas tank was at one quarter, which is way too small. And we don't care. Why we don't care for more about our half-hearted love for the Lord Christ, uh, for, the, for the Lord Jesus Christ, is a mystery. Christ lived died, rose, and ascended for you and for me. 
So why do we give him our leftovers? Why do we think that our relationships have nothing to do with knowing God? Why do we think that obedience to his commands in his word are optional? It's time to find the charger and plug in. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus will fully charge us to confidently live for his glory and honor. So friends, the cord is in your hands. What are you going to do with it? Thanks for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information about our church, you can find us on the web at www.emmanuelmora.com or on Facebook by searching for Emmanuel Mora. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to partner with us in our mission, consider giving financially to our ministry. You can conveniently give right from your mobile device by texting any word to 320-313-1950. There are options for one-time giving or recurring gifts on a schedule that you set. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Mora, Knowing Christ and Making Him Known.